It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This is Access Atlanta, your weekly look at what's fun, entertaining, and educational in and around Atlanta. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. As the new year gets going, some local theater productions have been pushed back, including Dreamhouse at Alliance Theater, which is now scheduled to open January 28th. If you have plans to attend any event or performance in January, it's a good idea to check online for the latest info. And the AJC will continue to bring you news of cancellations and postponements, so you can check AJC.com and AccessAtlanta.com too. Based on the books by Caldecott Award-winning author Ezra Jack Keats, The Snowy Day follows Peter and his friends as they set out to celebrate the first snowfall of the year. The Center for Puppetry Arts presents this wintry tale from Mesner Puppet Theater of Kansas City, Missouri. The show opens Friday, January 14th and continues through January 30th. Tickets are $18 for members and $22 for non-members. Go to puppet.org for more info. Stay tuned for more events later in the podcast, and after the featured conversation, we'll take a look at what the AJC is bringing you this week, both online and in print. The Obama portraits arrive in Atlanta this weekend for a run at the High Museum of Art. The portrait tour was unexpected, since originally there was no plan for the paintings to leave the Smithsonian after they were unveiled. But the gallery saw its attendance nearly double from 1.2 million visitors to 2.3 million visitors during the first year the paintings were exhibited and museums across the country asked to host the works. Atlanta is the fourth stop on the exhibit's five-city tour, which began in the Obama's hometown of Chicago last June before traveling to Brooklyn and Los Angeles. After Atlanta, the portraits go to Houston. On this week's podcast, we'll hear about the portraits and the tour from Dorothy Moss, curator of painting and sculpture at the National Portrait Gallery. Rosalind Bentley is here to bring us her conversation with Moss, one of the commissioners of the portraits. Welcome, Roz. Hey, Shane. Thanks for having me. So uh, this is a pretty uh, big deal. These these portraits. I mean, it's 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 interesting that you know the portraits before the Obamas portraits were never quite as big a deal. They they these were somehow different, and and people were really fascinated by them. So it's going to be great to see them. Well, I mean, if you think about the historic nature of the Obama presidency and the Obama's term in the White House, such an outsized reaction to them seems about right. 
you know, yeah. you have the first black president, the first black first lady, and then you have on top of that, these monumental paintings really done by black artists. So just as the Obamas typically were a big draw wherever they went in public or on magazine covers or on television, that seems to have carried through to the portraits that are now on tour. Right, so these these portraits are, are historic in, in more ways than, than most presidential portraits. Absolutely. Um, not only are the subjects historic, but the selection of these two African-American artists and the insistence that these important paintings, which are the public paintings of the Obamas, that they be done by Black artists to sort of showcase the talent that is there within the broader artistic community. And as you'll probably hear from Dorothy Moss, who is at the National Portrait Gallery, which is part of the Smithsonian, the Obamas were pretty clear that this was an important opportunity and an important message to be sent to the general public. And, and I think that the, uh, the huge amount of interest in seeing the portraits uh, speaks to the public's uh, fascination with them and, and interest in seeing them. Yeah, I mean, as I said, this is a couple that continues to draw interest. I mean, if you saw Michelle Obama's Instagram post on New Year's Eve, where she had on the shorts and, you know, you know, the cute mules and the president, you know, they had on their New Year's Eve, uh, you know, masks. And she was saying, what was it? Spending New Year's Eve with my boo. That went viral. And then yeah. there were there were also pictures of President Obama paddleboarding uh, in Hawaii. And you're like, wait, wait a minute, this guy's 61? <laughs> so yeah, there, there continues to be a tremendous amount of interest in the Obamas. Right. Well, is there uh, anything else we should know about this conversation uh, before we head into that? No, I don't think so. I will say that Dorothy Moss has been with the National Portrait Gallery for a while. So she has seen the reaction to various presidential portraits and she begins to convey why the reaction to these particular portraits has been so intense and so strong. And we'll see how that bears out when these portraits are unveiled at the High Museum. Awesome. And thanks so much for bringing us this conversation, Ross. Pleasure to do so. Thanks, Shane. All right, Dorothy Moss, thanks so much for joining us on Access Atlanta. Well, let's just dive right in. So the presidential portrait is both an age-old thing, but it's also kind of a relatively new thing, right? Yes. Um, and Rosalind, thank you so much for having me. It is a relatively new tradition. Uh, people think since we have portraits of all of the presidents at the National Portrait Gallery that we've been commissioning portraits for decades, but actually the first commissioned portrait of a U.S. president for the National Portrait Gallery was George H.W. Bush. Wow, that is pretty recent. And so what brought that on? Because heretofore, 
you had, as you said, every president from George Washington on. Yes, our former director, Alan Fern, decided at that time that it would be important to make an artistic statement with these portraits and to work with the White House curators and the president um, and an artist to have a public portrait made. And that's how George H.W. Bush's portrait was commissioned. And the artist of that portrait was Ronald Scher. Okay. Now you made a distinction there. You said the first public portrait. So there is more than one portrait then that we see of President? Yes. The White House commissions a set of portraits of the president and the first lady. And then the National Portrait Gallery commissions another set of portraits of the president and first lady. And the portraits that are at the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery are the public portraits for the People's Museum. Got you. And then the private portraits, is that just simply for the White House and then you have to book a tour to go to the White House or how does exactly. that work? Exactly. Those, those are private portraits um, that can only be seen in person if you're invited to the White House or if you have the opportunity to take a tour. So our portraits are really the ones that draw large crowds and get a lot of discussion around them and that make the press, you know, they, they're the ones that are seen by the most people. What about first ladies then? And again, their portraits. Yes. This is also a new tradition. The first first lady to have her portrait commissioned by the national portrait gallery was Hillary Clinton. And her portrait uh, was made in 2006. That was the first time that the National Portrait Gallery decided that uh, it was time for national for first ladies to have their portraits commissioned alongside the president's portrait. So uh, while the White House does have a full set of portraits of the first ladies, the National Portrait Gallery doesn't. And, uh, and so this is a fairly new tradition, too, and, and an exciting one. Well, besides the obvious, what made the commissioning of the Obama's portraits a little different from previous commissions? Well, there's so many things that made these portraits different and exciting, including the fact that we had the first Black president, first Black first lady, and a a president and a first lady who deeply cared about art and who had an invested interest in the arts. Um, They collect art. They cared deeply when they were in the White House about the art that was on the walls of the White House. So they were immediately interested in this process and in the statement that their portraits would make. And as we hear so often, wasn't their first date in a museum? Yes, their first date was at the Art Institute of Chicago. So from the beginning of their relationship, they shared a love of art and an appreciation for painting and sculpture and arts of all media. Um, So this was an exciting prospect for us as curators at the National Portrait Gallery to work with a first lady and a president who cared so deeply about these commissions. And the uh, first lady and the president would visit the uh, National Portrait Gallery and the other museums of Washington during their tenure in the White House. So they were uh, frequently in the museums 
they were looking at collections, they thought about how their portraits would fit in or even disrupt maybe um, and expand notions of portraiture and also highlight the importance of representation in our galleries. Well, tell us a bit about the selection process, if you will, of the artists, because you begin this process of getting a first lady's portrait and a president's portrait toward the end of their tenure, correct? But probably not during um, an election season? Yes, so the process begins at the end of the president's final term. And the National Portrait Gallery curators start talking with the White House curators. And in this case, we also spoke frequently with Thelma Golden, who is the director and chief curator of the Studio Museum in Harlem and also serves as the Obama's art advisor. So we, we talked a lot about what the Obamas envisioned, what kind of statement they wanted to make with their portraits. They requested uh, for the National Portrait Gallery to look at Black artists at different stages in their career. Some you know, emerging artists, some mid-career, and some very high-level established artists. And we worked closely with Thelma Golden and the curators of the White House to put together a list of 10 artist portfolios for each of the Obamas to review. And after they reviewed the portfolios, they selected three artists each to come into the White House for in-person interviews. Okay, and was that list secret? or at least yes. as secret as anything can be these days. Oh yes, it was sealed. It was a, a very secret list. Um, and, and the artists obviously who were invited in for interviews were ecstatic to have that opportunity. The thing about a portrait is the key to a successful portrait is the dynamic between the artist and the sitter. And the Obamas knew that. So they wanted to be able to meet the top artists in person and make sure they had a connection to make sure that they felt comfortable and that they could have fun together and really relax together because having your portrait made is also a vulnerable experience. So they wanted to have that in-person um, meeting to test you know, the experience of what it would be like to sit with this artist for a long period of time. So we now know obviously, that Amy Sherald, who is a native of Columbus, Georgia, and Kahinde Wiley, who is a California native, those were the two artists chosen by the Obamas. So can you tell me what stood out about Amy to begin with? Because she was on the National Portrait Gallery's radar for several years, correct? Exactly. Amy won the triennial Outwin Buchiever Portrait Competition at the National Portrait Gallery in 2016. And while she had already made a mark in the museum world, she had not quite made a national mark in terms of her reputation as an artist. So that competition, winning this prestigious, very competitive competition, put her on the map. And when the jurors selected her, I was one of them, we immediately noted how self-assured 
her subject was. And that painting that she won for is titled Miss Everything, Unsuppressed Deliverance. And it pictures a young woman holding an oversized teacup, looking out directly at the viewer with a big hat on her head. And she's so confident. She is so forward looking and she is so comfortable in herself that we couldn't look away from that painting. Um, and she was painted with a gray scale skin tone that we thought was really intriguing and interesting. And we wanted to know more about that. And so for us, we thought Amy's approach to portraiture was something new, something dynamic and, and forward looking. And, um, and we put her on the list uh, for the Obamas because we thought, you know, she deserves to be really considered for this. This is someone who's doing something fresh and new with portraiture. Let's piggyback just a little bit. You mentioned the term grayscale. Yes. There may be listeners out there that maybe don't understand that, but maybe have seen Mrs. Obama's portrait and subsequent portraits by Amy Sherald, for example, Brianna Taylor, and might wonder why is the skin of a black person, an African-American painted in gray rather than tones of honey or tobacco mm -hmm. or molasses? Well, Amy describes herself as a conceptual painter and the grayscale skin tone, the grayscale skin tone, she's always thought of as a meditation on photography. Um, she's really interested in the history of portraiture. And as a child, she would look through family albums and look at black and white photographs of her family. Later, when she studied art, she looked through albums at the Library of Congress uh, by W.E.B. Du Bois of black families. Um, and she saw these black and white photographs as a part of portraiture that she hadn't really considered as um, something that's been told, that's been taught in the history of portraiture, these very dignified portraits. And she wanted to bring that history into her paintings um, with the grayscale skin tone. She also talks about the fact she loves graphically how that grayscale looks against um, often solid backgrounds, colorful backgrounds. Uh, but really what she is doing is creating a conceptual portrait that tells a story that brings up a history. And um, in doing so, she's moving portraiture forward. And what then about uh, Kehinde? Because his portraits couldn't be more different. They, they are arresting as Amy's are, they are vibrant, but you're talking about a, con a completely different way of expression. Yes, he is reversing the power dynamic in portraiture. He is taking everyday black people who he runs into on the streets, who he has an encounter with, but doesn't know that person necessarily and puts them in grand scale narrative portrait painting. Um, sometimes uh, port the portraits are modeled after earlier portraits in the history of art, but he is putting his subjects in a position of power in the center of the frame and large gold frames. And in, in that, he's really making us think about 
who has been portrayed in the past, who deserves to be recognized in a large scale portrait. And, and he's opening that narrative. Let's take a short break and look at more events in and around Atlanta. Buck Cherry went into 2020 ready to tour throughout the year promoting the band's 2019 release, Warpaint. The pandemic saw to it that the year was not going to go as planned. But rather than just sitting around and watching one tour after another get pushed back and ultimately canceled, Buck Cherry put the unexpected downtime to work by making Hellbound, the new studio album that arrived in June. Now the band is back on tour and headed to the Masquerade in Atlanta on January 16th. Tickets are $26.50 and you can find those at masqueradeatlanta.com. Go to accessatlanta.com to read our interview with Buck Cherry frontman Josh Todd. In 1992, Dion Cole took his first stab at stand-up comedy because of a friend's dare. Now three decades later, Cole's unapologetic sense of humor has taken him far beyond the comedy clubs and the $50 his friend originally offered him. The former writer for Conan O'Brien has a recurring role on the hit ABC series Blackish and reprises that same character as an adjunct professor on its freeform spinoff Grownish. The raspy-voiced deadpan funny man who appeared in the Barbershop franchise, the premiere of Netflix's The Stand-Ups, and the TBS police satire Angie Tribeca is bringing his Coleology tour to the Tabernacle on January 15th. Read our interview with Cole and get all the details on his upcoming performance on AccessAtlanta.com. I'm Ernie Suggs. And I'm Ned Ravone. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Let's continue our conversation with Dorothy Moss of the National Portrait Gallery. Well, is that what you mean then? You referred earlier to the possibility that the two artists might in some ways be disruptive in terms of the narrative that we have become accustomed to and presidential portraiture. Yes, we really thought we had an opportunity here with these portrait commissions to break the mold, to have portraits commissioned that are about the present, but that are also about the future. And President Obama and Mrs. Obama as art collectors, as people who deeply care about the history of representation and people who care about the future, who care about young people, um, were the perfect match to push the genre of portraiture, to make a statement with their portraits. All right, well, then did the Obamas give the artists any special directives regarding how they wanted to be portrayed once they chose them? My understanding is that there was a really special connection between the Obamas and these artists, and there was a lot of trust. And again, to make a successful portrait, there really needs to be trust between the artist and the sitter. There's a lot of vulnerability there on both sides. 
And so there was not a lot of directive. They worked together almost in a way that, you know, an artistic director would work with an actor, you know, where there's a lot of trying on different outfits, uh, trying out poses, trying on, you know, different hairstyles in terms of Ms. Obama, the look that she was going to project. But um, there was a lot of, I, I get the sense there was a lot of freedom on the part of the artists in terms of that trust that the Obamas gave them. Well, for example, with President Obama, he's sitting there, he's leaning forward, he's casual and relaxed in body language. And then there is the obvious open neck uh, collared shirt. Can you talk a little bit about that? I do believe that President Obama wanted a portrait that was approachable. And Kehinde Wiley presented him in a more casual look um, without a tie. He's seated. He's looking out directly at the viewer. He's leaning towards the viewer, in fact, and he's got a twinkle in his eye so that we come right into the frame with him when we're standing there. Um, and I do believe that uh, that sense of being someone who's approachable, who's listening, was, was part of the way that President Obama and Kehinde Wiley wanted this portrait to look ultimately. And what about for Mrs. Obama? Because she has on a dress that in the portrayal and the portrait, it looks like a grand ball gown. Mm -hmm. But I think in an earlier conversation that you and I had, it was actually anything but that. Yes, it's a cotton dress. It's sort of a midi length. Um, it's easy to wear in the sunlight. It, it caught the sun. Um, and it, it's one of those dresses that projects ease and comfort yet forward-looking style in its, in its design. And Amy Sherald wanted a dress that captured Mrs. Obama's forward fashion sense, but also her interest in comfort and being an everyday woman who projects a sense of easiness in her style. And so in doing so, it seems as though the Obamas wanted to leave a legacy that said, you know, this is truly who we are. Do you feel that that comes through when you look at those portraits? I do. And I think what speaks the loudest is the reaction of visitors standing in front of the portraits. There's something about these portraits that project such a strong sense of presence. You almost feel like you're standing with the Obamas. And it's one of those magical things that can happen in portraiture where the portrait becomes so real feeling that there's a vis visceral connection established between the viewer and the painting. Um, once the great photographer Dawood Bay said to me, you know, you're in front of a great portrait when the psychological connection dissolves the frame. And I think that's really what happens with these portraits. Okay. Well, I would love for you to describe 
what the unveiling was like, not necessarily what we saw on CNN and on social media, but the more private unveiling that the curators at the Smithsonian saw in the day or two before the public unveiling. Yes, well, I'll never forget that. I, I almost uh, feel like I play it in my mind in slow motion because it was such an extraordinary moment. Um, the paintings were uncrated by our art handlers, and we went down into the basement of the National Portrait Gallery and uh, into the storage room. And wow, I mean, there was silence when we walked in and stood in front of these portraits for the first time. They were so beautiful and dynamic and so different from past presidential and first lady portraits. They weren't set in a ceremonial room in the White House. The uh, subjects in both cases were looking directly at us. The backgrounds were dynamic in their own ways. Mrs. Obama against a celestial blue background, President Obama against these glowing green leaves and flowers. And then the warmth of his eyes, the twinkle in his eyes, the warmth of his skin, in her case, this calmness, this cool calmness, and uh, the triangular composition that forced us to look up at her as if uh, she was a, a kind of Madonna. Um, both of them were just breathtaking. So is that what made these portraits, as you've described them, forward-looking. If we look at the portraits that are there in the presidential hall at the National Portrait Gallery of the Smithsonian, um, is that what makes these portraits stand out from other depictions that are much more, um, well, let's just say composed differently. Yes, I mean, for the most part, the portraits of presidents and first ladies at the National Portrait Gallery are formal. They are, uh, the sitters are posed in um, formal settings. And in this case, these portraits are both so inventive and uh, there's so much creativity in the way the artists approach the background. Um, and, and then such a break from that formality in both cases. While Mrs. Obama looks exquisitely elegant, she's also looking right at us with her, her hand on her chin, wearing this be beautiful dress made of cotton material, um, elegant yet comfortable. And you feel as if you know them when you're looking at them, you feel as if you could have a conversation. So. What will surprise viewers when they encounter the portraits for the first time? Because everyone, well, not everyone, but many people have seen them on social media. I've even seen them on some bootleg t-shirts and purses. <laughs> so what's gonna surprise? I think whenever you see a work of art in person, after it's become well-known in reproduction, there's a surprise. In this case, there's so much dimensionality in the portraits. Um, you really feel a sense of presence, as I mentioned, 
before you see a glow in his eyes, a warmth in his smile. In her case, you're looking up and you sense the presence of a strong, elegant, caring woman. And those qualities don't always come through in the reproductions. As dynamic as they look in reproductions, there's something magic when you see these in person. You also mentioned something about the green, this verdant garden mm -hmm. that almost seems to be about to consume the president. Yes. So there's a tell sense us more of, about that. Yes, you, you see the green leaves overlapping parts of his body and in the way that the painting is lit in the museum, these greens jump out, um, they glow. And it's, it's really striking, um, you know, to stand there and look at how the palette works um, with the vibrant flowers and the greens and uh, the warmth of his skin. There's something really um, almost ethereal, yet relatable. And does that have to do, as you said, with the way the portrait is lit? Or does that just come through even when you were in the bowels of the portrait gallery looking at it for the first time? No, I saw it when we first saw the portrait before it was lit. It's almost like there's an inner light and the lighting in the museum just brings that out. But there is a glow about the portrait even before it's been lit with the beautiful museum quality lights. All right. Well, this is the next to the last stop uh, on the tour so far. Perhaps there will be others in the future. We don't know. But can you tell us what the impact was on your museum in terms of people coming to see them and in terms of attendance and then also just in terms of interaction by guests. Yes, our attendance, the National Portrait Gallery's attendance doubled with these portraits. Lines were formed throughout the museum to see both portraits. In fact, we had to move her portrait up to the third floor because originally it had been placed near the lobby. And there was such a line that uh, it became actually a fire hazard and uh, you know dangerous to have that many people waiting. So the lines that formed um, to see these portraits were extraordinary. We never imagined uh, that the interest that these portraits would generate. And not only did they generate um, higher museum attendance, they generated so much conversation and discussion that played out in the spaces of the museum but then beyond that, um, on social media, in the press, in um, in art writing, in textbooks, you know, these are these are iconic portraits now, and the conversations around them um, have been really fascinating and have reinvigorated the art of portraiture. Now, you say that, but there was also some criticism, if you will. Uh, there were some who looked at the portraits, and if we look at social, some people said, well, that portrait doesn't look anything like 
Mrs. Obama. It looks more like Regina King, the actress and director. There were some who said, well, why is President Obama about to be, you know, eaten by greenery? That sort of thing. So right. let's I mean, talk a little bit about, let's talk a little bit about that. Yes. And I remember Amy Sherrill talking to me about how worried she was about some of the responses she was seeing on social media. But I kept saying, this is what makes a great work of art. Conversation. For art to generate conversation, to generate thinking, um, to sometimes cause debate. That's a sign of a good work of art or a great work of art. I mean, these artists were doing something new. So clearly there were going to be people who took issue with that. Um, but at the same time, that's okay. I think that's what art's for. All right. Well, Dorothy Moss, thank you so very much for thank you, your time Rosalind. today. Thank you so much for having me. The AJC brings you the best of what's happening in and around Atlanta on accessatlanta.com. Here's a taste of what you'll find there. January 17th marks the 36th anniversary of the King holiday, and to many, it's another day off from work. But to millions across the country, if not the world, it's a day to honor the man and the civil rights movement by lifting up the community. Atlanta, of course, takes pride in being the birthplace of the civil rights movement, as well as the final resting place of King. Before the pandemic, there were parades and multiple celebrations around the metro area. Today, it is more subdued and some organizations are rolling back, going virtual or canceling activities. Still, there are plenty of ways to honor King. Hands on Atlanta, which connects citizen volunteers and socially responsible companies to nonprofits and schools in need, has partnered with the King Center, the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, Morehouse College, the Atlanta History Center, and Points of Light in an effort to reinforce King's beloved community. Check AJC.com for more ways to celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Veteran stand-up comic and former Metro Atlantan Ron White told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution Tuesday he is done with stand-up comedy. His Fox Theater show on Friday, January 14th, which is nearly sold out, will be his last in Atlanta, he said. He plans to do more shows this year nationwide and wrap it up for good on New Year's Eve. The former Suwannee resident sold his golf course adjacent home in 2018 and moved to Austin, Texas, where his son lives. Read our interview with White on accessatlanta.com. For more things to do in and around Atlanta, go to accessatlanta.com and ajc.com. The podcast is edited by Tyson Horn. The theme music is by Bo Emerson and Billy Ewan, and I'm your host and the AJC's arts and entertainment editor, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more Access Atlanta.